Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's two o'clock, 2 a.m. For the next six and a half hours, his captors will transport him all over Jerusalem, all over Jerusalem. Six different trials will occur before Jesus is ultimately sentenced, scourged, crucified, and buried. Though Mark summarizes the Jewish portions of the trials, we know from other accounts Jesus is taken from the garden to the home of Annas, the high priest. This is where we pick it up in verse 66. Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus of Nazareth, but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch and a rooster crowed. Now, like the other disciples, Peter initially ran for cover following the garden scene. However, unlike the other disciples, Peter, he circles back. He makes his way through some of the dark alleys to the home of Annas, to the outer courtyard to check on his friend. Now, as Jesus is being grilled by Annas, Peter uses his ninja-like skills to get himself in the outer courtyard. This was a section uh, between the front door and the street. Most of the time, uh, with wealthier neighborhoods, these were public places that folks could congregate. Because there was a multitude there at Jesus' arrest, a multitude, no doubt, brought Jesus to the high priest. Knowing this wasn't to be Jesus' final stop, that he would be moved around, there is still a mob assembled outside. So Peter works his way in through the crowd. Now, I'm sure that Peter understands the risks and his maneuvers. But in his mind, he's thinking that the darkness of the garden, coupled with the hectic nature of people coming and going, things getting crazy, that maybe he could just kind of stay on the fringe and no one would notice who he was. He wouldn't be recognized. He's warming himself. It's a cool night. And we're told that one of the servant girls of the high priest approaches him with the accusation that he was with Jesus of Nazareth, presumably that he had been with Jesus in the garden. However, more than likely this gal was not with the mob. Wouldn't be a very intimidating mob if you're bringing around servant girls. More than likely she recognized Peter from the exposure of Jesus probably earlier in the week. Jesus was a very public figure. The 12 that were with him were also public figures. So this servant girl recognizes Peter. She's a servant girl, or literally, she's a young female slave, a maiden. Peter, he responds to her accusation, well, in a kind of smart way. He doesn't want to cause a scene. He doesn't want there to be a commotion. He doesn't even want to raise his voice. Apparently, upon her accusation that that, that Peter was a follower of Jesus, he simply deflects. He says, I neither know nor understand what you're saying. This was akin to playing dumb, kind of looking at her like, what are you talking about? Well, who's cheat? What? I don't, he plays dumb, he plays stupid, he deflects. And then Mark tells us that he goes out onto a porch and a rooster crows. Now, you would imagine that since Jesus has already told Peter earlier in the evening, Mark 14, verse 30, that he would this evening deny him three times, and the denial would then be followed by two crows of a rooster. That upon going out onto the porch after denial number one and hearing a rooster, that Peter would have, like, gotten the warning. You know, that it was kind of a shot across the bow. You would have thought that after denial one, after Jesus had predicted it, after hearing rooster crow for the first time, that Peter would kind of wake up to the reality of what's happening. And yet, he is so full of pride, he is so filled with self-confidence that he ignores the warning. Now, I want to make a side observation. Please understand that hearing a rooster crow in the city of Jerusalem would have been a totally abnormal, semi-bizarre experience for two reasons. One, they were not allowed in the city because they were unlawful. They were unkosher. Secondly, 
They were messy, varmint-style animals. And in a city where they're trying to keep things clean, they're trying to keep things sanitary, they had outlawed, even within the Gentile areas of the city, roosters. Roosters were not in Jerusalem. So hearing a rooster crow, though we kind of read that and think that that's normal, that maybe even Peter just didn't hear it because he's so used to hearing roosters crow. It would be like you in the middle of the night, as you're sitting on your back deck, enjoying the cool breeze of the evening, here in the distance, outside of your gate, an elephant roar. I mean, it would catch your attention. I mean, it would be not something that you would overlook. A rooster crowing was akin to hearing an elephant. Like, what in the world is that? And yet, even then, he ignores the warning altogether. Now, we don't know how much time elapses, but Jesus has moved from Annas, the high priest's home, a few doors down to Caiaphas to appear before a mock trial, a part member of the Sanhedrin. Peter follows, and we pick it up with verse 69. As Peter follows, moving to the next house, the same servant girl, she saw Peter again. And she began to say to those who stood by, this is one of them, a follower of Jesus. But Peter denies it again. This word again simply indicates that he enacts the same strategy as he had done before, that he just simply tries to deflect the accusation. But note the subtle difference in how things are progressing. And the first accusation, Peter's warming himself at a fire. And what happens? The servant girl looks over and is kind of like, I think I know you. I recognize you. And so the servant girl comes, approaches Peter with the accusation, right? However, at this point, the subtle difference is that she's no longer now aiming her accusation towards Peter. She's directing her observations to whom? To those who stood by. So now she's bringing other people into the fray. And once again, Peter deflects. Well, a little later, verse 70, those who stood by. So these people that she's brought into the fray, they say to Peter, surely you are one of them for you are a Galilean and your speech shows it. Then Peter began to curse and swear. And he makes a scene and he cries out, I do not know this man of whom you speak. First, there's the simple observation by a servant girl. The same servant girl brings in others, bystanders, pointing Peter out. As the trial moves now to the temple from the house of Caiaphas, it's now accusations being hurled by others, by those who stood by. Now at this point, John he makes an interesting observation in chapter 18, verse 26. He actually gives us the identity of one of these people who just stood by, one of these bystanders. John tells us that one of the servants of the high priest, uh-oh, that's not good. Then he says, a relative of who? Of him whose ear Peter had cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Uh-oh. I mean, now the strategy of deflection is no longer in his repertoire. Because why? We now have an eyewitness. We have a bystander who is there. As a matter of fact, he's a guy who really took note of Peter. Because Peter had attacked his relative, had cut off the ear of his relative, no doubt this man observes it. Why? Because Jesus attaches the man's ear back to his face. So now you have an eyewitness like, no, wait a second. I know you. You're the guy who can't hit a moving target with a sword. Like, I know who you are. There's an eyewitness. Peter's beginning to sweat under the collar. This is not just a servant girl who wasn't there. This is now someone who was present, someone whose relative he had attacked, and also... Now his Galilean accent begins to sell him out. Apparently, if you were from Galilee, people knew it. Apparently, you had a draw. You had an, a an accent. I tend to think it was probably pretty classy, like a southerner. But it was an accent that was very distinct nonetheless. According to the Talmud, 
the educated people in Jerusalem so despised the accent of a Galilean that they were outlawed. They were not allowed to read the scriptures publicly because they felt like their accent was so guttural. So Peter, there's an eyewitness. They know he's from Galilee. The noose is tightening, and with the pressure mounting, he becomes now defensive. First it was deflection, now it's defensive. And as any defensive person does, knowing they've been caught, he lashes out. Mark says he began to curse. This word curse, it's an interesting word. It literally means to declare oneself liable to the severest divine penalties. And then to swear is to affirm an oath. And so Peter's now no longer saying that he doesn't know Jesus. He's, he's being so outlandish that he's making an oath to them. He's like, I swear to you. And, and in our culture, it's like, I swear on my mother's grave, meaning I'm being really serious here. But he goes a step further. It's like, I'm swearing upon the greatest divine penalty that could possibly exist. He's literally saying, I'll be damned to hell if I know the man. Rut row. Wish he could take those words back because, verse 72, a second time, a rooster crows. And Peter, he calls to mind, the word that Jesus had said to him, that before the rooster crows twice, that he would deny him three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Luke 22 indicates something interesting. So you have the second crow of the rooster occurring as the words are coming out of Peter's mouth. Luke, Luke tells us that as Peter was speaking, cock-a-doodle-doo, like it's happening. But also, immediately, something else takes place. And we don't know how it, how it happened, where Peter is in proximity to Jesus, but this is what happens. Peter, in this very moment, as the words, I'd be damned to hell if I know the man in the rooster crowing, he looks, and his eyes connect, told that Peter turned, and the Lord looked at him that his eyes in that moment connected with Jesus. And it's at that point that Luke tells us that Peter remembered the words of Jesus. Can you imagine what kind of guilt, like what the moment must have felt like for Peter? Not just to, in some arbitrary sense, he's denied Jesus three times, the rooster crows, and he's like, oh, snap, I remember but to see Jesus, what, what was his face like? Was Jesus angry? Was it, was it a scowl? Can't believe you. I don't think so. Well, was Jesus' face one of disbelief? He had predicted it. Jesus knew. I think it was one of compassion. I think, I think that when Peter's eyes met his lords, that the look on Jesus's face at this time, bloodied and bruised, one eye probably swollen shut, that it was one of love. I told you, I knew it would happen, but I love you. I care about you. Like it, it was, you know, you know, anger. I know this as, as, as a kid. I'm kind of learning it as a parent. But like if my mom really wanted to give it to me, it wasn't the look of anger that like stirred me to emotion. And it wasn't the look of like necessarily disappointment that really got you. But it was one of love, knowing that you hurt her. Like that just grips you, right? Like the compassion being demonstrates strikes a chord within our soul much deeper than anything else. And Peter sees the swollen face of Jesus looking and his eyes connect. Now understand that Peter, just a few hours earlier, had been adamant 
and his loyalty to Jesus. He was full of pride. He was full of cockiness. But Jesus had been clear that he would fail. And indeed, pride precedes a fall. But please keep in mind that the entire situation here with Peter had been set up by Jesus to teach this man a very important lesson. For you see, in order for Peter to be useful for Jesus, in order for Jesus to be able to maximize what he could do in and through Peter's life, Peter would need to understand that there was no amount of self and no amount of his self-ability that would enable him to really follow Jesus. Beginning in the garden, Peter had tried with all human vigor to follow Jesus. And the strength of his own ability through the standing of his own self-righteousness, motivated, yes, by the depths of his love and devotion for Jesus, and yet, even then, with his strength and his ability and his self-righteousness and his devotion, over the last few hours, Peter, Simon Peter, had discovered the hard way that all of the things that he took so much pride in, namely himself, had proven to be sorely, tragically, yes, may we even say epically, inadequate. Peter was learning that his best would never be quite good enough. And when he thought about it, he wept. Literally, Peter was so completely overwhelmed with a sorrow that flowed from the deepest part of his being. It wasn't like a trickle. It was deep, moving, passionate. And I really think Peter wept for two reasons. Peter wept because he knew that he had fallen short of his own lofty expectations for himself. It's interesting to me that had Jesus asked any of these things of Peter, I mean, had Jesus had a powwow with Peter and, and set some expectations? You know, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be tried. All these things are going to happen. But this is what I need from you. Team player, Peter. You and me, mano a mano. I need you to do this and I need you to do that. Had it been Jesus who had set these expectations for Peter? I need you to, to pull out a sword. I need you to go down with me in a blaze of glory. I need this and I... no. Jesus had not set the expectations. Peter had set the lofty expectations for himself. He held himself to a high standard. And when he had fallen, no doubt his pride and his ego had been crushed to powder. So he wept because he let himself down. He wasn't quite what he thought he was. As a man, anytime my ego is under assault, it's very hard to fully wrap my brain around it. Like when you realize as a man that you can't quite do what it is you think you can do, it's a bummer. It strikes a deep chord, but no doubt Peter also wept because he had failed Jesus. You can never question Peter's love for Jesus. You really can't. You gotta give him credit. You can't question his devotion, his heart, He's sincere. He really is. He's forsaken all to follow Jesus. He's given up all to be part of what Jesus is doing. Peter has given his life to Jesus. And not only that, but it was Peter the only one that was willing to go down with the fight. Peter's the only one that comes to check in on Jesus, to follow at a distance as these trials are taking place you got to give Peter some credit in some regard. And no doubt his love for Jesus caused the, the swell of emotion and his failure. I'm sure that as Peter is processing this, that in his mind he believes that he has just committed the unpardonable sin. That his relationship with Jesus has now been irreversibly broken. That he has failed his Lord. And how... Could you forgive such a deed? In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis, he said, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see that is which is above you. 
Though we don't know what happens over the next few hours for Pontius Peter, it's important to note that Jesus was not done with him. As a matter of fact, this moment, the crowing of the rooster, the connection with Jesus, the weeping, this moment, it's fascinating because for the first time in Peter's life, he was exactly where he needed to be. For the first time in his life, what he would consider to be the darkest point of his life, in that moment, his estimation of himself was finally exactly where it needed to be. His failure on that night would prepare him. It would serve to prepare him. For what? The radical experience that he would that he would have with Jesus' forgiveness and grace. Like, like Peter, if you read his, his letters, he's constantly referring to the grace of Jesus. It was from this failure, this lowest point, that he was now ready to have an experience with Jesus' forgiveness and an experience with Jesus' grace that would change him for all time. And he was also, because he had come to the end of his strength, the end of his ability, the end of his prowess and power, that he was now ready to know what? that there was no way he could follow Jesus without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That he finally got it. You look at the book of Acts, which is, by the way, where we'll be heading next when we conclude Mark. But we'll note that Peter, this man, just some 50 days later, is used in a radical way. As a matter of fact, he looks like a totally different person when we look at him in Acts. The main difference, he had been broken, he had been forgiven, and he had been filled. And the Lord would need to use a crisis, would need to break him of himself in order for Peter to ultimately be useful. There's a legend. There's no scriptural evidence for this. It's just one of those myths of church history that every time Peter would hear a crow of a rooster, whether it be in the morning or randomly in the afternoon, that it so still moved him that he would get to his knees no matter where he was and spend time with Jesus. That that sound he could never run from and it always was a reminder. Well, chapter 15, verse one, and immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes, the whole council, and they bound Jesus. <laughs> really, that's kind of interesting to me. They bound Jesus, kind of on a side point. Do you think Jesus was really bound by them? He had already proven in the garden that he had total control, that, that he wasn't being arrested, he was surrendering. That with just two words, I am, boom, this seismic wave went through the garden, knocking everyone on their tushes. So, I mean, was Jesus bound with ropes? Like, really, this is silliness. Jesus was not bound with ropes. Jesus was bound with something much greater. He was bound with what? Love. Love for whom you and me. It was that that bound, that tethered, that connected Jesus to what would happen, that led him from place to place to place. Ropes, how silly. But they bound him nonetheless and they led him away and we're told that they delivered him to Pilate. Now let's get to our scene of activity. Mark sets the stage immediately in the morning. Under the cover of darkness and in secret, Jesus had stood before Annas. A pretrial had occurred at the home of Caiaphas before he officially appeared before the Sanhedrin in the temple, the full council. Their decision concerning him had been unanimous in affirming that they were correct in the statement that he was indeed the Christ, the son of the blessed. Jesus had been found guilty of blasphemy. It was a crime fitting of death. However, the problem is that since 7 AD, the Jewish people had not had the right to capital punishment. The Romans had revoked this privilege as a result of some of their revolts. They were no longer allowed to execute their own. That verdict, that ruling, that decree could only come from a Roman. So though they wanted Jesus dead, they would have to provide Pilate, the sixth Roman governor of the region, a justifiable reason for his execution. And we'll see that this would be easier said than done. 
you need to note two things about Pilate that helps set the stage for, for what will occur next. History tells us that Pilate, Pontius Pilate, seemed to have been an anti-Semite. He hated the Jewish people, despised the Jewish people, had no regard for the Jewish people. He had found them to be a source of consternation. He had found them to be a thorn in his side. He hated them. They were frustrating. And he did not get along at all with the religious establishment. His relationship with the scribes and the high priests and the elders of Israel, the Sanhedrin, was less than amicable. Now, imagine if you're Pilate. You've revoked their ability to execute. They hate you for it. You hate them. They hate you. There's no middle ground. I mean, you think the relationship between Republicrats and Democrats are not working very well in America? Like that Democrats and Republicans hate each other? What's happening here was actual hatred. Like they would want to kill each other if possible. They have no middle ground, no room for compromise. So you're Pilate. And these people that hate you, that you hate, there's no commonality. They are now approaching you in the morning. As soon as you open the courts, they come up and they're like, hey, Pilate, how you doing, bud? We need you to do us a solid. How about a favor? And their favor is the very, they ask you to do the very thing that they hate you the most about, executing one of their own. Now, if you're a pilot and you're like, Right from the beginning, you know nothing of the situation, but you're like, something's a little fishy here. You're coming to me for me to execute one of your own, but you hate the fact that you have to do that, but you're doing that anyway. Like, this is weird. The second problem that the religious leaders would have, aside from the fact that they had to work with Pilate, is that they would need a crime that was worthy of a Roman execution, claiming to be God, blasphemy against the law. This was enough to be condemned, to be executed, condemned to death under Jewish statutes, but it wouldn't fit Roman criteria. I mean, Pilate wouldn't care. He's always crazy running around claiming he's God. There's a lot of gods. I mean, they were polytheistic. He's a God. I'm a God. You're a God. Who cares? Like, really? And I don't care that he's blaspheming your God. Like, that's petty. Like, he had no concern for that. So they couldn't approach Pilate under what they considered to be the real crime. It didn't fit the Roman criteria. So as we'll see, the religious leaders decide to present a case that Jesus was a revolutionary who had come to establish his own kingdom. You see, claiming to be king would have been considered by Pilate an act of treason against Caesar. That would have been a crime worthy of punishment. Now, historically, this relationship that Pilate has with the Jews, they hate each other. Pilate's an anti-Semite. In addition to that, uh, they have to develop a case. Pilate has to, there has to be a justifiable reason for him to execute Jesus. But you need to also know that though it would seem, it would appear from the beginning that Pilate holds all the cards. The religious establishment had one big trump. There was a dynamic at play presently during this time that the religious leaders could exploit. You see, as the Roman governor, 30, 32 AD, Pilate found himself in deep political trouble. Everyone knew that the relationship that Pilate had with Caesar, Tiberius, was toxic. As governor, Pilate's main job, his main role, the reason he exists is to keep peace. That's his main job, keep the peace. And yet, since coming to power in 26 AD, history tells us that Pilate deliberately instigated, though, though it's, it's a debate whether he was doing it intentionally because he hated the Jews, or he was doing it accidentally, just kind of wasn't really savvy enough to understand the unintended consequences of his actions. He had made a mess of things. First, Pilate had commissioned, the first thing he had done, 
he had commissioned a picture of Caesar be placed in the temple precinct. And viewing this as idolatry, a graven image, a blasphemy of the greatest sorts, of the highest order, what did the Jews do? They did what they always did. They rioted. As a result, Pilate needs to send for more troops. More troops come in. They have to crush the rebellion. Word gets back to Rome. They're like, that's not what you're there for. You're to keep the peace, not cause riots. Well, a couple years later, Pilate, he ends up taking money. He steals money from the temple treasury. The temple treasury only exists because the Jews give the money to the temple for the temple purposes. But Pilate took out money from the temple treasury to build an aqueduct city for an aqueduct for the city. Once again, stealing money from the temple treasury was not going to go over well. And what did the Jews do? They did what they always did. They rioted, of which Pilate has to send for more troops. They have to come in, crush the rebellion. Word gets back to Rome, and they're like, that's not what you're there for. Pilate is on thin ice. They, he can't afford a riot. He can't afford a rebellion. He can't afford anything other than peace. If he does, he knows his political career is over. He's done. He's banished. He can't survive an outburst. Now, Pilate. Pilate is mentioned, obviously, in all four Gospels. We have mention of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's also mentioned by two Jewish historians, non-biblical Jewish historians, Josephus, of which most of us are familiar, and another man named Phileo of Alexandria. He's also mentioned by name by a Roman historian named Tacticus. However, though mentioned in writings from the Gospels to Jewish historians to Roman historians, skeptics have always tried to pick on Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea because there's been no archaeological evidence to validate the claim. Skeptics have tried to point out, yeah, the entire story of Jesus' death and execution, all that jazz— you got to have Pilate, but we have no evidence of Pilate ever existing. Oh, you can't trust the gospel narratives. Boo. Although there's a Jewish, two Jewish historians and a Roman historian that collaborate, there's no evidence archaeologically. Something interesting happened in the 50s. The Egyptians were building what was called the Aswan Dam. And one of the unintended consequences of the Aswan Dam, damming up the Nile, is that the flow of soot and silt into the Mediterranean Sea was incredibly limited. And they didn't really realize this would happen, but what took place in like three or four years is that the shoreline of Israel, just north, began to grow. It began to expand. There's no silt coming up. Thus, the water begins to decline. Thus, the shore expands. Now, what happened is that there was a helicopter pilot flying over a region that was between Tel Aviv and Haifa, and he looks down and he sees in the, this now shallow water that's been filled with soot for centuries, he sees ruins. What's discovered is the ancient city of Caesarea. Josephus talks at length about Caesarea. It was constructed by Herod the Great between 25 and 13 BC, and then Josephus tells us later on that the city the time of Jesus, had become the official administrative capital, home of the Roman governor. So they begin to dam up the water. Major excavations begin to take place in the 60s. They discover an incredible amphitheater. You can Google it. You can see the pictures of it. I've been there. It's pristine. It's awesome. The Roman architecture that had been preserved because of the water and the soot. June 1961, they're doing some excavations of the amphitheater. An Italian archaeologist named Dr. Antonio Frava discovered a stone. The stone dates back to 26 AD. It had been reused in a renovation of this amphitheater in the 4th century. It was part of the stairs. And upon the stone, he discovered an inscription that read, to the divine Augustus Tiberium, Pontius Pilate, perfect of Judea, that was a way of saying he's the governor of Judea, has dedicated this. What is today now known as the Pilate Stone, of which there are no debates of its existence or authenticity. It's in the museum in Jerusalem. You can see a replica there at Caesarea. It references 
dates to the, the year, references Tiberius, has Pontius Pilate inscribed there from Caesarea. It's known as the Pilate Stone. It's universally accepted and does what? It proves the historical veracity of the gospel narrative. You will find people that say Pontius Pilate never existed, and you're like, wrong. Like you are denying a ton of accepted history. So Pilate, verse two, he asks Jesus, he says, are you the king of the Jews? This is the accusation that's been brought. And Jesus answered and said to him, it is as you say. And the chief priest accused Jesus then of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked Jesus again, saying, do you answer nothing? See how many things that they've testified against you? But Jesus still answered not a word. So Pilate, we're told, marveled. Now, as Mark does, it's characteristic of Mark. Mark simplifies uh, an interaction that's a bit more complicated than it would appear. Mark is, I kind of I love reading Mark in the sense because it's like he wants to get to the, the cool stuff. And like he's got to establish a case, he's got to get through it, but he's like rushing, he's hurrying, he's summarizing whole sections because he wants to get to Jesus's death, but he wants to get to the resurrection. Like that's, he's on a beeline to it. So Mark always summarizes, oversimplifies what's rather complicated. But again, in John chapter 18, we're told that, that they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium. It was early in the morning. Verse 28, we read that they themselves, when they came to the Praetorium, which is where Pilate is, they don't go in lest they should be defiled because it's Passover. So Pilate, he goes out to them and he says, what accusation do you bring against the man? Now, Pilate hates these people and he hates the dynamic. Gotta get in mind what's taking place. They show up early, the praetorium, Pilate's opening the courts. They're not gonna go in. So what do they do? They send Jesus in. So Pilate's standing there with Jesus in front of him. And he's like, I have no idea what's, why you're here, what the deal is. And there's like a note saying, you need to talk to the religious leaders. So Pilate has to get up from his judgment seat, has to go down, has to go outside of the praetorium because they won't come in. It's like, what do you want? Who is that? So they tell him. They, they, they say, well, he's claiming to be a king. So what does Pilate do? He gets back in. He goes back into the praetorium, puts back on his garments. He gets back onto the judgment seat and he looks down at Jesus and he's like, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus is like, did they tell you that? And he's like, <laughs> he gets back up. He has to take his garments back off. He goes back down. He goes back out. He's like, hey, he says, is this coming from you? Or did he actually say this? Like, really, what's the accusation? So Pilate, the whole scene is he's going back and forth and back and forth. We read, so Pilate enters the praetorium again, according to John. He calls Jesus. He says to him, are you the king of the Jews? Kind of getting back to where Mark is. And Jesus answered and he says, are you speaking for yourself of this or did others tell you this concerning me? So Pilate said, am I a Jew? Your own nation, the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done since Pilate's frustration? So Jesus answered and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews and definitely not you, but my kingdom is not from here. So Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Like we're getting back to the point. Are you a king or not? And Jesus answered and he says, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate's scratching his head, like what's the deal with this man? And he says, what's truth? And even when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and like you need you need more than this. Why? Because I find no fault with him. Now, this is not Pilate's first rodeo. This is his job. This is what he does. He makes judgments. He's interacted with these knuckleheads on numerous occasions. He doesn't like them. But this scene, the whole interaction, the scenario, what's happening in the morning, there are two things that jump up to him, that impress him. 
First, there's something weird about it. Like there's something off about these religious leaders and Jesus. Like there's some interaction here. There's some relationship. There's some deeper hatred that they, ha they hate Jesus more than they hated Pilate. And that caught his attention because he, he concluded that they didn't hate anybody more than they hated him. And so they're like, I'm not, I'm not getting the whole story. He senses that. There's something deeper at play. There's something more radical at work. He determines that Jesus is innocent. Then he's got to consider, why do they want him dead? And if they want him dead for any reasons that aren't justifiable, what would then be the political consequence? If he told him to buzz off. I mean, if he freed Jesus, what would happen? So he's caught. Do I execute a man I know is innocent or do I run the risk of a riot? Can I, in my conscience, sentence a man that I know is innocent to death to save myself? Like Pilate is stuck in a really politically toxic dynamic. That's the point here. But he also notices something else. Something else jumps out at him. Jesus, there's something radically weird about Jesus. There's something different. He marveled at Jesus. And why? Because Jesus remained silent and he didn't put up a rebuttal to the accusations that the religious leaders were throwing around. And this jumped out to Pilate because he'd never seen someone do this before. Anytime people throw around accusations that are false, we get defensive and put up, you know, our own kind of, uh, we start throwing accusations back. We start finding reasons. We start blaming others. Like no one ever takes something that's not true laying down. And like, like Jesus is just chill. He's beaten, he's bloody, and he's not answering a word. And like, this is bizarre to him. Not only that, but what caught Pilate's attention, Pilate sat on the judgment seat, which means he was the absolute authority. He had the power of Caesar, which means that he had men's lives in his hands when they would come and stand before him. Whatever Pilate thought, whatever whim he had, he would be able to sentence you to a horrible, excruciating death. And so he'd seen men stand before him, weep and cry and beg. He sees nothing in Jesus than he's ever, this is abnormal because Jesus stands there with peace. Pilate, as the sole arbitrator of the law, held Jesus' fate in his hands. Yet Jesus didn't beg for mercy. He didn't defend the accusations. Now, though not included by Mark, between verses five and six, here in Mark 15, Pilate in this moment, realizing that he's kind of stuck, like there's no good options, he tries a, a kind of a savvy political maneuver. He hears that Jesus is from Galilee in the course of the conversation. And he decides, oh, you're from Galilee. Well, I'm going to send you to Herod, Herod Antipas, because Herod Antipas was a puppet of Rome who was kind of more specifically in charge of the region of Galilee. So from, Jesus, from Pilate's mind, he's thinking, wait a second, there might be an out. I might not have to rule. I'm going to send, it, send you to Herod. I'm going to let Herod decide. So Jesus goes to Herod between these verses. And he doesn't say a word to Herod. Not a word. Says nothing. Doesn't interact with him at all. Herod, who's a child, like gets all irritated, all wigged out about it, wants Jesus to perform a magic trick. Jesus won't do it. Throws a little hissy fit and does this. He sends Jesus back to Pilate. So can you imagine, you're Pilate. You've sent Jesus away. You're thinking, I got out of that. That was a smart move. Herod will deal with it. He moves on with the next few cases. And then he looks in the distance. And who's coming back to him? He's like a boomerang. He's trying to get rid of Jesus and he's coming back. Well, verse six. Now at the, the feast, which this was, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Pilate is gonna try one more trick that he has up his sleeve because he had a custom of releasing one prisoner. Whoever they requested, he release. And there was one named Barabbas. Literally, his name is Bar Abbas. Bar is son of Abbas is the name of his father. Abbas, ironically, means father. Bar Abbas, his name means son of the father, which is ironic. 
History tells us that his first name was Yahshua. His name is Yahshua, Barabbas, Yahshua, Jesus, son of the father. So he's going to release to them Barabbas, who, we're told, was chained with fellow rebels and had committed murder and the rebellion. Now, in order to gain back some of the goodwill that he had lost with the Jewish people, Pilate had developed this custom of releasing a prisoner. Whoever they wanted, he would release, thinking that that would gain him some goodwill. Knowing this was the case, knowing this was the custom, knowing that on the feast, Pilate always did this, a crowd has assembled outside of the praetorium to do what? To seek the release of whomever they wanted, which was whom? Barabbas. So the mob that's outside, and this is important because I think we sometimes twist the way that this functions, the way that this scene plays out. That in our minds, we think that the same crowd that was out there, the same group of people following Jesus, the same multitude that had come from Galilee down through Jericho, made the ascent to Jerusalem, that this mob of people, this crowd, Jesus' friends, those that had been chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna, the king, that it's the same group of people that was so fickle that now at the praetorium, they chant out, crucify him. That somehow the events of the week had shifted, had switched, had turned public sentiment against Jesus. Not the case. Please understand that no one knows Jesus has been arrested. No one knows that he's stood trial. No one knows that the Jewish establishment has sentenced him to death. It was illegal to hold a trial at night, according to the law, according to the extra Jewish writings. Everything they had done that night was illegal. Why? Because they didn't want people to know. Because they knew people loved Jesus and would stand behind Jesus and would turn on them for Jesus. So the whole trial is done at night. It's done illegally. By the time Jesus gets to Pilate. People are waking up. People are enjoying their, their cup of coffee with their paper. They have no idea that their hero, that their, that their, their savior, their Lord, the, the person who, who has healed them or set them free or, or whatever, they have no idea Jesus is in the praetorium standing before Pilate. No clue. The mob there is there because Barabbas was a revolutionary Barabbas was this iconic hero. He was a bad man. He was a known murderer. He had committed murder in an insurrection. He had committed murder killing Romans. So they were like, we want Barabbas. They're there. It's a pro-Barabbas rally out at the Praetorium. And so the multitude, as Pilate comes up, like, who do you want? Jesus, son of the father, or Jesus of Nazareth? Barabbas or Jesus? At that point, the people that are there don't give a rip about Jesus. They're there because they want Barabbas released. So the multitude cries out loud and they began to ask him to do what he had always done. Pilate said, who do you want? Barabbas or the king of the Jews? And he knew that the chief priests had handed Jesus over because of envy. But the chief priests were told, they stir the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. People begin to look around like, Jesus or Barabbas? Like we weren't expecting Jesus, but we are here for Barabbas. And then there, there's little birds all throughout the mob that are like, we want Barabbas. And like, it's mob think. They're there for Barabbas. They're riled up for Barabbas. They hate the Romans. They, not only that, but Pilate's encouraging them for who? To take Jesus. But they don't trust Pilate. So the mob's kind of thinking, well, why would you want to dump that guy on us? You don't want to give us Barabbas because he's a threat to you. So all the more, this group of people in captivity who hate the Romans are crying out for their revolutionary. The whole scene is stacked against, and so they, they begin to cry out. He, he says, what do you want me to do with Jesus, who, who you call the king of the Jews? And they say, crucify him. And Pilate says, what evil has he done? But they cried out even more, crucify him. The cards are stacked against Pilate. He knows that if he doesn't release to them Barabbas, what will happen? This group will riot. And as a consequence, 
what must he do? He must capitulate. Something else occurs. Matthew tells us that before he makes a verdict, there's a little tap at the back of the judgment room. A little guard comes out and says, Pilate, your wife wants to talk to you. Pilate comes back to speak with his wife, and according to Matthew 27, verse 19, we're told that Pilate's wife said to him, listen, I don't know what's going on, but you need to have nothing to do with the just man, for I've suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Pilate has to make a decision. Now, we're going to get to Pilate's decision. We're going to get to the the fallout of it. We're going to get to all that next week, but I want to close with this thought. Barabbas. Barabbas is a man that there is no doubt is guilty. He's guilty as charge. There's no facade. He's wicked. Barabbas deserves death. Barabbas deserves the cross. Barabbas deserves to be punished and executed for his crime. A crime he didn't deny, a crime that the court found him to be guilty of. Can you imagine you're Barabbas and you get released? Like if there was anyone that could ever say that Jesus died on his cross, <laughs> Barabbas fits, fits the category because Jesus literally died on Barabbas's cross, a cross that had been put up for Barabbas. If anybody could say that Jesus saved me from the death that I deserved, it was Barabbas. The picture here, because Jesus takes Barabbas' place, the innocent is executed for the guilty. Jesus endures what was meant for Barabbas but for you as well and me. See, in Barabbas, we have a picture of humanity. Guilty as charged, sinful and wicked and lost, deserving of death and judgment and punishment, deserving of the wrath of God. And yet Jesus, he took our place as he took Barabbas. That's sobering, and that's radical, that Jesus would die for Barabbas. And if Jesus would die for Barabbas, he would die for you, wouldn't he? If Barabbas was not out of Jesus' reach, neither are you. We're told that there's nothing that you can do to separate yourself from the love of God. Traveling verse by verse, sometimes it's difficult to find an appropriate place to stop, to pause. It's difficult when you're in holy ground, such as this. But at this point, they're chanting, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus will release Barabbas, a pilot will release Barabbas, and he will sentence Jesus. And that is where we'll pick up things next Sunday.